A Royal Navy Sea King went, went across the Fanning Head, accompanied by two Royal Marine light gazelle helicopters. But both the helicopters were shot down, the light helicopters were shot down by the, the remnants of this Fanning Head Argentine mob. One helicopter crashed, killing the crew. The other one, piloted by uh, a sergeant called Andy Evans, uh, landed in the water, managed to auto-rotate, land in the water, and him and his colleague were shot in the water whilst they were swimming ashore which for me um, changed things a great deal the way I viewed the Argentines. During the middle of the May 21st, arrived on deck in a, in a Wessex helicopter, called us over to the door, and we expected maybe casualties or prisoners of war. But in the back were these uh, three dead pilots, one of whom was Andy Evans, who I knew. So suddenly for me, the war took on a very real and different aspect, a very personal aspect. That's when you're suddenly dealing, not only dealing with the first dead of the war, but also people, people we knew. Welcome to the Kit Cage, and always, I'm your host. Uh, apologies, it's been a while since the last episode, but if you've been following our socials, you'll understand why. And if you're not following our socials, please click on the link below. And without further ado, let's get on with today's episode. And today we're speaking with the author of The Band That Went To War, Brian Short. Brian, how are you this morning? Fine, thanks, Dan. Thanks for the invitation to come and talk. Absolutely my pleasure. Um, obviously, you wrote the book... Uh, the band that went to war, which covers your time in the Royal Marines when uh, you went to the Falklands in 82. But I want to go straight back to the start of your life almost and your reasoning in why you joined the military, who you were as a type of person and why you joined the Royal Marines. Right. Well, I suppose I have to go back to before I was born, actually. The uh, the effects of war were visited upon, visited upon me and my family even before I was born, because my father served in the Royal Marines, and we have the same name, Brian John Short. And unfortunately, he was killed at Suez in 1956, uh, just three months before I was born. There was a, a minor war, if you say, in, in, in near Suez when the British invaded to try and get control of the canal. And 13 Royal Marines were killed, including my father. And sadly, I never knew him. He was killed in November uh, and I was born in January. So uh, tough times for my mum. And uh, so I was given his name, Brian John Short, and uh, a leaning towards the Royal Marines. So with that, eventually my, my mother remarried and uh, had quite a miserable childhood, to be honest. <laughs> but that's not what we're here to talk about. But it did affect... My early life, I think, as a, as a child with a, a stepfather who didn't like me, saw me as a bit of a cuckoo in the nest. So I did things like join the Royal Marine Cadets, where I started to bash on the drums. This is in Plymouth, Stonehouse Barracks in Plymouth. Uh, and eventually got moved around by the errant stepfather, put into care a few times. Until one day when I was age 15 and a half, which was the earliest you could apply to join the Royal Marines, uh, I went to the uh, the careers office and they must have had a quota to fill because he said, I, I see you want to join the Royal Marines and you've uh, you've got some good history there, but you also play the drums a bit. Have you thought about joining the band? Uh, and I hadn't really considered it. So they sent me to Deal in Kent, which is where I live now. And uh, there used to be the Royal Marines School of Music here where um, I came for an audition. 
And originally I applied to be a bugler, which, uh, which was a, a marching drummer at the front of the Royal Marine Bands. They, they play the marching drums and they carry a bugle. And, uh, but unfortunately, my, my huge under or overbite, my teeth, meant I was never going to be playing a, a, a blowing instrument. So uh, crestfallen, I went to see the, the officer in charge and he said, well, you, you failed on your teeth, Lofty, uh, unfortunately. Um, but I see you play a bit of drum kit. Uh, do you know the national anthem? Now, in that era where I grew up, the 60s and 70s, when you went to Saturday morning uh, cinema, yeah, the first thing they did was sing the, the national anthem. And having more confidence than ability, I stood up in front of him and sang several verses of the national anthem. So he said, well, you, yeah, you have got a lot of confidence. You play a bit of drum kit. Would you like to join the Royal Marines as a percussionist? which is another form of drummer. You still get to play the marching drum, which I loved, still play drum kit, which I still do now, uh, but you don't have to clean and carry a bugle. So I thought, oh, it's, this is win-win. So just about my 16th birthday, uh, in uh, uh, for a few months after that, in January of 1973, I came back to deal with the school of music was where I joined up and started my Royal Marine career. There's a good bit to un unpack with that. So it, if I could um, just go back to almost the beginning of that, your, your, your childhood, you said you had a, a bit of a, a miserable childhood. Don't, you know, I don't want to dwell on that, but it, it does seem to be uh, a reoccurring theme with um, people I've interviewed, people who have been in the armed forces, special forces, especially like, um, you know, elements like the Royal Marines, that they seem to have that, commonality with their upbringing that, that there's been some sort of trauma and if it has been trauma they've been brought up in a, in a hunting background so it's it's interesting to see that there's that sort of commonality there um you know saying that you had disagreements with your with your stepfather and you know tragically your, your father had been killed in the Suez canal sort of crisis who who was your male role model in that time who is it you were looking up to uh, good point uh, yeah there was a lot of instability uh, and uh, I think my my, my step grandfather at the time because I ended up living with my woman for, for a few years I lived with my grandmother and her husband and he was my role model for a while he was a former army man and I think that gave me some some grounding but he died of cancer at he was age 43. So I'm trying to put that into context in, in terms of my own age. But he died very young at the age 43. So I lost that. And then my mother came back with the stepfather and took us, moved us away. And I ended up in children's home. I ended up in um, trouble with the police. I had to go to court, magistrate's court. And um, well, long, long story short is that uh, a local sea cadet unit had been broken into. And all their equipment and drums were scattered everywhere. And, of course, I saw... Um, I saw a bass drum and I hooked it on to what was a parachute harness and I was walking down the street playing it. And of course, it didn't take the police long to, to find me. <laughs> uh, and um, so I got into trouble there. I had to, had to go do 12 hours at an attendance centre. Um, and I think what happened was the, the Royal Marines, like it probably does, or the services do for a lot of people, it provided stability. Once I joined up, I had form, I had function, I had discipline. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I had... Um, I had, a, I had a family, if you like, of sorts, which is something that uh, had eluded me up to that point. 
uh, and uh, because all my other brothers and sisters belonged to the stepfather. And I, I got on with most of them, you know, but um, I was the cuckoo in the nest, it seemed. And um, I did always have my own way of doing things, which got me into trouble. It got, things got so bad, uh, myself and my younger brother tried to push the stepfather down the stairs and kill him. And that was the night when um, he took umbrage at that. He didn't like that. And bearing in mind, I'm 15. And that was the night he threw me out of the house. And I had to make my way back uh, to Plymouth to live with my, my grandmother. So very disruptive uh, childhood. And uh, but suddenly it all became clear on the 29th of April 1973 when I arrived at Deal. And suddenly there was order. Uh, and I was being ordered and I had discipline and uh, had a, had this quasi family that um, suddenly I was on the straight and narrow, if you call playing in the Royal Marine Band, the straight and narrow, which, which I do. Were, were you told that, you know, joining the, the Royal Marine Band that you'd be trained as a infantry soldier first before you were given that trade? Was that something that you were aware of at that age? Because obviously... 15 and a half, 16, it's a very young age uh, to be going in um, and perhaps thinking that you were just going in to play a musical instrument. Well, it's actually in the Royal Marines, it is the other way around. You are a professional musician first who has some military training. You do your basics when you when you join up, you do six weeks of square bashing and stuff. Uh, and you do some infantry drills in terms of learning how to fire a rifle and clean it and stuff. Um, now they do a bit more actually. I've just finished uh, writing another book. I've written two books. And the other one tells in detail how now they do like a 10 week course at the Commando Training Centre at Limston before they get their hands on their instruments. But certainly back in those days, you were joining the Royal Marines to be a musician. And there was really no talk of going to war or any of that uh, malarkey, if you like, just the basics of uh, marching, cleaning a weapon, firing on the range uh, and uh, a bit of fitness. So really, it was all about music because you do two and a half years at the Royal Marine School of Music then. Now it's dependent on your on your skill set and your and your level of music, but certainly then it was um, musician first, uh, raw marine a raw marine infantryman second, if you like. And the the sort of era that you were joining um, early seventies, obviously it had been um, twenty years really since the a big conflict that Britain was involved with in, uh, the Suez. You having the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, during the seventies, so what what was the atmosphere like joining the military in that sort of time? Well, in the seventies, as you say, there was quite a period of of peace between the wars, and so we were sort of isolated from it down at Deal. Deal is at the end of the world, the world down at Dover. You have to want to get there, and um, yeah, we didn't have a we, we didn't have a lot of clues about that. We, when I eventually finished my training and I went to a band. We had to do things like have uh, pulse of police searches before concerts because the IRA were quite uh, busy at that time, both on the mainland and abroad uh, and in Northern Ireland. So we started having to have police searches. Uh, eventually, uh, because of, well, for, for, for their own political reasons, the IRA did eventually visit Deal Barracks and, and put a bomb here in 1989, killing 11 Royal Marine musicians. Um, so that was quite sad. But at that time, it was it was. I wouldn't say lip service because it was taken quite seriously, but it was not something that the average bandy musician had to worry about. The, the security was taken care of. 
And we did have to go to Northern Ireland as musicians, but not uh, under the op, um, it was op banner. We didn't do any military work. We went out there to play, both for the locals and out for the troops. So again, um, it, was, it was only when I went there later, uh, when I was in the police, that um, I did any uh, proper work out there. But for me, it was um, it was the 1970s, the Cold War was on. Um, our basic military training at the time, each, each to move on to that perhaps, is the... Uh, each year, each Royal Marine Band does a couple of weeks of military training. And most of us then were geared up to uh, the Cold, Cold War threat against Russia. So most of the bands were, were, would learn how to protect KPs, key points. And one of the bands I was in, Stonehouse Band, we were attached to the medical squadron. And our job in the event of a nuclear or chemical or biological attack would be to decontaminate the wounded before they could be seen by the doctors. And people of that era will remember the only thing available was this Fuller's Earth, which was just like inert talcum powder, which you still use it. Bang, bang, block, rub. And uh, do that. <laughs> and whoever, whoever got made the casualty was put on the stretcher, thought they had it easy, but of course they were covered in this stuff. And then they also had to have a couple of squirts under the gas mask for good measure. So that was our um, our one defence against the Russian nuclear or biological effect was this uh, was this uh, Fuller's Earth. So um, for us, uh, there was a threat from the IRA, and it did eventually visit us at Deal. But in the seventies, it was the Cold War threat we were we were kind of supporting. Obviously, you, you know, you alluded to the fact that joining the Marines, you you gained this family and, and structure. Did you have? Um, a role model out of the instructors, out of your basic um, instructors that almost became a sort of father figure that you looked up to and you wanted to emulate at that time? Well, I think uh, looking back now, I think everyone who has their first drill instructor has that love-hate relationship with them. And uh, you, you hate him to start with. And um, I um, I remember the first day I joined the Royal Marines, actually, and uh, we were in one of the uh, the washrooms where people do their ironing and their washing. And because uh, I was quite tall for my age, and he gave me a sheaf of papers that, to hand out to everyone. And they were these um, stenciled blue things that come off a machine. They looked like a photocopier it was at the time. And it's for everyone to fill in. And and I and I dropped I dropped them on the floor. Of course, they all got wet. And he looked at me and he said, you are the fucking one. And it wasn't a reference to... Uh, I'm not the saviour, the second coming. In each squad, apparently, there was somebody who was going to make his life more difficult. And on this occasion, I was the fucking one. So as it turned out, um, there were several other fucking ones in my troop who took some of the heat from me. Um, but at that very moment on day one, I was the I was I was I was spotted by him. And uh, but eventually, by the time you finish your training, he has become like a father figure. And also we had a very good first drill called Tex Freeborn, who was the archetypal Royal Marine. He was about six foot two, ramrod straight, and he was the first drill of the parade ground. And you could look at the parade ground without getting shouted at by him. But he was a, a great father figure to, to everyone. And uh, he, he would even chastise the officers when they if they were late for parade, or he was the one who would call the parade to attention and report to the officers. And if any of the young, young officers were late, he would... Um, admonish them he had all the quips that you would expect of a, a proper a parade uh, first drill sergeant to have so yeah those were the first two major figures uh, in in my life and i spent two at least two years with them under training at deal so uh, 
yeah, made a big impact on me. It sounds like you, you look back on that time with very, very fond memories. Yeah, now, it was good times. Now, um, you know, you, you, you said that the band went to, to Northern Ireland during probably the height of the Troubles there in, in the 70s to play for the civilians and the troops. What what was going through your mind at that time? Um, were you aware of how dangerous it might be? Did you did you see anything while you're out there? Well, um, what was going through my mind and all the, the musicians is what the fuck are we doing here in the middle of Belfast High Street playing a military band concert, wearing flak jackets and green berries? Um, it's just not, um, it just didn't seem to make sense because you knew at least half the population hated you. Um, the other thing was we were there to play for the troops. So occasionally we'd be flying out of Besbrook Mill in a helicopter, land in bandit country. Some poor Marines would be dug out of their pit and say, wake up, bandy's here, he's going to play for you. You'd, we'd play 20 minutes of music and then get back in the helicopter and fly out. It, it, none of it really made any sense, to be honest. Somebody somewhere thought it was a good idea, but it was probably an officer with a gin and tonic. It wasn't a senior NCO who thought, I know what the lads need. Uh, Colonel Bogey at 4.30 in the morning. You know, so, um, yeah, it was. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense, to be honest. Uh, but we didn't do anything operationally. We just, it just seemed that the lads who had to look after us found it to be a nuisance and an extra security risk that nobody really needed. So, yeah, not, not, not the happiest of times. Interesting. Some of the lads did enough time there to wear their Northern Ireland medals, but um, um, I, I, I just don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think we earned them, shall we say. Did, did you understand the, the the dangers that you might have been in while you were there, as you were saying, playing on the high street at that time? Yeah, we, we really did. And uh, even when we were picked up from the airport by the Marines, they picked us up in some Sherpa vans, some civilian Sherpa vans. And over the windows were crisp boxes, as if we were delivering crisps. And uh, some RUC uniforms had just been stolen. So at every checkpoint, the Marines had, to, had their weapons cocked and ready to fire in case... Uh, this checkpoint, particular checkpoint, was uh, uh, an IRA one. So we felt very, much, very, very vulnerable, and uh, yeah, no idea really what the hell we were doing there. You know, it was uh, completely unnecessary, to be honest. Coming back to the UK then after that year, you know, we're still very much in peacetime. Yes, the the Cold War is looming over us, but uh, as you alluded, it, it's it's merely. Uh, response to, to the nuclear threat rather than boots on the ground. So there's still that very much feeling of, of, of peacetime. So if I may just, you know, fast forward to when Margaret Thatcher comes on the news in, in 82 to to say that the Falklands had been invaded. When you heard that news, did, did, you, did it ever cross your mind that you were going to be involved as heavily as what you were? No, we were on Easter leave. The band, had, uh, I was in Plymouth band. If the band was called uh, the Band of Her Majesty's Royal Marines Commando Forces, Plymouth, and the Commando Forces name only refers to our um, headquarters hierarchy. We had no special training, if you like. Uh, and um, we were all sent on Easter leave. And um, I had a load of civilian gigs to play at, at the Dartmouth holiday camp. I had a whole bunch of three weeks worth of league gigs to play on drums. And so I saw it on the news and... Uh, I figured, well, we've got a load of roughly tufty Marines for that, Greenberry Commandos. They'll go off and sort that out. And maybe if worse hits, shit is the fan, we'll be called in to guard the barracks, maybe. That'd be the worst case scenario. But because of the Cold War threat, where well, we were attached to medical squadron uh, on paper to uh, decontaminate the bodies, 
when they were mobilized as part of uh, three commando brigade to go, they realized they would be 40 people short, which was the band. They would need those 40 bods. And luckily, uh, General, uh, our brigadier as he was, Julian Thompson, said, yeah, take the band, because he'd known the band service right from the beginning. He was a young officer in charge of the band. He was uh, in charge of the band training. He was a commando officer. He'd seen them throughout their time. And he said, yeah, take, take, the, take the band, they'll, they'll be useful. And so when we went into the band room, we, we were summoned back in from leave. Instead of being issued guns to guard the barracks, our boss stood up on the podium where he normally conducts and said, right, we're off to war tomorrow and um, make your own preparations. And uh, we're joining it, the Canberra, the great big white ship, cruise ship Canberra, uh, and we sail in 48 hours. So that was quite a shock for, for people who have not trained as infantrymen, you know, as, who are primarily musicians with a bit of military training. Uh, and uh, so we had to go away and think about that. Now, ironically, I was due to go on a, a promotion course at, uh, at Limston. And uh, so boss said, you and uh, two others are not going with us. You'll go on the promotion course. But Plymouth Band, Commander Forces Band was such a good band uh, collectively. They were my, my social family. We played music together. We, we'd socialized together. That I said, well, actually, no, I, I figure the course will be canceled because the, the commander instructors will be going to war. So I'd like to go with the band. So he, gave, he said, well, I'll give you 24 hours to think about it. Uh, and go and talk to your family. Uh, and uh, for some reason, my family thought it'd be a good idea that I went to the war as well. So um, so I went back the next day and said, yes, sir, I'd like to, please, please may I go to the war, sir? And he said, yeah, Corporal Short as I was then. So that was it, I drew all my equipment and we clambered into Pusser's buses and we drove to join the Great White Whale that is uh, the Canberra cruise ship, which had been uh, hast was being hastily converted into a troop ship. Uh, not a hospital ship. Um, she was never allowed to have the Red Crosses uh, because she was a troop ship. And under the Red Cross Geneva Convention, once you are one, you cannot become the other. So we we, do, we get to Southampton where we join the Canberra along with thousands of other Royal Marines and uh, a battalion of the the Parachute Regiment. What, what was going through your mind? Because, you know, going from being on leave to having that 48 hours notice, you know, we, we know that it's a short period of time, but to, to go from the realisation that being a band <clears> member, <throat> playing in places like the Royal Albert Hall, playing on, on camps for the morale of the troops, to to suddenly being deployed to, to a combat environment, did what was going through your mind at that time? Well, at the time, we figured, I think we thought, everyone, with the American diplomatic efforts and the fact we were we just amassed this big task force, it was all on the news and everything was happening, that the Argentines would back down and, and leave. So we'd be back in a couple of weeks with a, with a suntan, a story, and, and another medal. So we figured it really wasn't going to be kicking off in that way anyway. So uh, And it was being all part of being a bit different, bit of a bit different routine, we had to get the leave back. I was pissed off that I had to give away these private gigs, but that had already been done now. So just a question of getting on with it and, uh, and getting stuck in. But I never thought at that point, none of us thought that we would actually be seeing any combat uh, or be put under any... Um, uh, in any danger because of the diplomatic efforts. It seemed like it would have, it should have, um, and hopefully would uh, be dealt with peace, peace, peacefully. Boarding the vessel on, on the south coast and, and leaving, how long was the 
the cruise time from the UK to the Falklands? Well, it took a couple of weeks to um, to get down there, and I think it was deliberately, not leisurely, shall we say, but all the ships were loaded hastily in the different docks, Plymouth, Southampton, Portsmouth. So they had to reconfigure everything, put everything in the right place on Ascension Island. But before that, we put into uh, uh, Sierra Leone, Freetown, uh, we put in there for refueling. And uh, again, I think there was publicity there to help put pressure on the Argentines to see that there were these thousands of troops. So we had uh, some time there in Freetown for the day refueling. And um, I think there we, uh, we we fired the first shots of the war, actually, because uh, there were these little bum boats that came alongside selling trinkets and furs and stuff in exchange for plastic containers, which they would then go and steal fuel with uh, from the, uh, the the local depot. Uh, but unfortunately, the, uh, one of the officers on board decided that if any disease was brought on board, it would go through the thousands of troops. So we were barred from uh, bartering with them. And they started shouting things like Malvinas and things like that. So it was a couple of the parachute regiment, um, a couple of the Marines hosed them down. Well, in that heat, that didn't really, that was not really a punishment. So a couple of the parachute regiment lads um, offered them the loan of a fire extinguisher from about 60 feet up, which they dropped right through the bottom of the boat and it started to sink it. So that was the first offensive shots, I claim, of the Falklands War. So we left Sierra Leone without any, any friends uh, and we made our way to Ascension Island. And we were there for, there for about 10 days. And again, we were moving stores around, getting new troops on board. And then the Argentines, um, well, there was a credible Argentine submarine threat. So each night Canberra had to sail from her, from, from Ascension Island and just go around the islands in a zigzag pattern, uh, pattern, pattern like they used to during the Second World War to avoid the submarine threat. Um, it was about that time, we were there for about 10 days. We did go ashore, the band, we did play a couple of gigs. Uh, we played on the beach for the troops. We did a beat retreat for the RAF at the top of the hill. Uh, we test fired some weapons and we were busy training with our medical role as well during the day. Uh, and then news came in that the Belgrano had been sunk and we knew then we were in a shooting war and the task force upsticked from Ascension and sailed south. And then within about two days, I think it was, we'd heard that HMS Sheffield had been hit and, uh, and sunk. So we knew then we weren't going to settle for a 1-1 draw and we knew there was definitely going to be more loss of life and fighting would be needed to remove the Argentines from the islands. That must have been quite quite nerving for you, having such a long journey. Uh, you know, obviously the Ascension Islands being sort of the midway point from the UK to the Falklands uh, that's, that's <coughs> still used now. That that last leg of the journey, having that news in your mind, uh, must have been quite quite shocking, quite unnerving for you. It was a shock when Belgrano was lost and then also Sheffield. I mean, at that time, although we were in the wrong range, technically we were sailors, if you like. We were on a ship. We were vulnerable. And uh, even the, the hardened monks just realised that actually people's dads, uncles, sons had been lost on both sides at that point. Needlessly, because it did seem quite a needless war, even before, during and afterwards. Um, but what happened was as well, being, having been at sea for quite a few weeks now, uh, all these young Royal Marines and parachute regiment guys full of testosterone, uh, all ready to go, uh, were getting a bit fractious and we're, there's a bit of swinging handbags in the evening around the bars. 
Uh, and so um, we started playing music for them to try and entertain them. We put a little jazz quartet together, a rock band, as well as the military band. And it was to try and take the, the sting out of the, um, the, the potential that was coming just around the corner, the, uh, the, the, the fight that was coming. So we were the only Marines allowed in the, Paris, uh, the parachute regiment bar. And uh, first of all, we weren't allowed in. And then Denzel Connick, uh, the, he, he died recently. He was the head of the South Atlantic Medal Association. He was running their bar and he said, oh, well, all right, please come because they're fighting each other now. They, they can't fight the Marines, we're fighting each other. So we went in and there was lots of grumbling from them as we, as we brought our kit and stuff in. But luckily our keyboard player had arranged a, a tune called Ride of the Valkyries, which is the regimental march of the parachute regiment. And we did it like a funky jazz number. And that was it. We couldn't do a thing wrong then. We Not only were we the only Marines allowed in their mess, we were sort of welcomed uh, when, when we saw them. So tensions are rising. We're playing music. We're practicing. Uh, the medical process of getting... Um, people off the flight deck if they were delivered we practiced that quite a bit because although we weren't a hospital ship we still had a hospital facility and then two days before we had a, an O group from uh, surgeon commander Rick Jolly who was head of the uh, uh, the medical squadron uh, a very charismatic and great great leader of men and he said uh, the, the hospital facility will go ashore and he said what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave the band on board because actually once all these uh, Marines and Paras go ashore and the medical unit, the ship will have no medical, uh, no military men on board at all. So um, we became, eventually became the main military unit on board the ship, manning the uh, the GPM machine, gu machine guns that were mounted around the deck, um, operating telephone exchanges. We, we were it in, in effect once all the troops went ashore. And that occurred overnight on the 20th, 21st of May in Canberra and about six other ships slipped into San Carlos Bay. And for us, that was the beginning of, of D-Day. What, what was it like for you um, when you finally got to the Falklands then and you were, you were in control of this vessel, you were in control of defending it, in control of the, the comms, knowing the... the our forces were out there. You were going to experience casualties coming back, um, not knowing what state they were going to be in, and you were going to have to deal with that. Was that going through your mind at that time? Yeah, we weren't exactly in control. We were just part of the part of the system. Yeah, um, we're part of the system. And uh, but one of the things that went through my mind, I remember, is as I said right at the beginning, my name is Brian John Short, and my dad's name is Brian John Short. And his name's on a Royal Marine Memorial in a headstone in Gosport. And I started to wonder whether the name Brian Sean Short would actually appear on another headstone if, or if things went tits up. So overnight, we, we, we go into San Carlos Bay and uh, it's a beautiful clear night and you can see all the stars. And, and because you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you see the patterns are all different, but it's a beautiful clear night and we can see the uh, outline of the islands perhaps a mile away. And then it's it's perfectly quiet, and uh, suddenly the ship behind us, the Royal Navy ship, starts firing, which frightens, scares the pants off me and my mate Phil, uh, Graham Smith, and we run indoors and try, start hide from the uh, the firing before the Navy captain on board says, "Don't worry, that's our naval gun fire gunfire support firing at the troops on Fanning Head." So we could go back outside and we can see a gunfight between our special forces. And the Argentines with the with the uh, the tracer going up the hill and tracer coming back down the hill, 
and these were called the fanning head mob, as they became known, uh, the Argentines, who were the only ones who could see the troops arriving, us arriving in this uh, in, in Port San Carlos, as it was. Uh, and they were pushed off the, uh, the headland and made their way inland. Uh, unfortunately, later that day, um, we, uh, we managed to get all our troops ashore, thousands of Marines by helicopters and by landing craft. And the same with the Paras, we got them all ashore by mid-morning when the, uh, the air raids started coming in from, from the Argentines. Suddenly it went from a beautiful spring morning to all, all hell letting loose with planes uh, whizzing over their head, ships being bombed, planes being shot at the sky. Around Canberra, we had 26 GPMG machine guns attached to the rails. All of them were chattering away. All the other ships were firing. We had uh, a Marine detachment with a blowpipe, uh, shoulder-held missiles. They were firing off as well. It was absolute and chaos. Uh, and once they'd established a beachhead, um, a Royal Navy Sea King went, went across the fanning head, accompanied by two Royal Marine light gazelle helicopters. But both the helicopters were shot down, the light helicopters were shot down by the, the remnants of this fanning head Argentine mob. But, and I suppose you could say they were legitimate targets, but um, and uh, one helicopter crashed, killing the crew. The other one, piloted by uh, a sergeant called Andy Evans, uh, landed in the water, managed to auto-rotate, land in the water, and him and his colleague were shot in the water whilst they were swimming ashore, which for me um, changed things a great deal, the way I viewed the Argentines. And the reason I know about this, Andy used to uh, give me a flight around, the, uh, around Plymouth in his helicopter, because he knew I was a bit of a helicopter spotter. And... Um, and then Rick Jolly, uh, during, the, during the middle of the May 21st, arrived on deck in a, in a Wessex helicopter, called us over to the door, and we expected maybe casualties or prisoners of war. But in the back were these uh, three dead pilots, one of whom was Andy Evans, who I knew. So suddenly for me, the war took on a very real and different aspect, a very personal aspect, as you know, suddenly dealing, not only dealing with the first dead of the war, but also people, people we knew. So that's for me when it changed. I stopped calling them the Argentines, I then referred to them as the enemy, and it changed changed things for me. When when you opened the door and, and you know you saw your friend there, did did you looking back, did you honestly deal with it there and then, or did you bottle it up? I couldn't have dealt with it then because it was very immediate. Mm. You're, beneath, you're stood underneath the blades are turning and burning. Commander Rick Jolly's giving you these, you know, take take these, get them down to the morgue, get them in body bags, uh, all these things. You couldn't deal with it then. It was all training kicked in, if you like, discipline and training kicked in and not wanting to let people down. So you just get on with it. And uh, I think what helped was uh, about a week later, we had a burial at sea for these people. And there was a time to reflect then. Then there was very much a time to reflect and consider life and death, if you like, of, of other people. And I was able to identify with it because I know that, um, you know, I, I grew up, my mum was a, a war widow. Um, I grew up without a father. And now other people around me uh, or back home were getting that news and now have, their lives had all changed. So I think I dealt with it later. Uh, and um, much later, I was offered uh, on the way home, we were offered some sort of counselling. And I don't think it did me any good then. But I, um, I'll talk about that perhaps a bit later. But we talk about the bombing because yep. um, it, it, it it's kind of related, uh, I think. 
Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so we were just dealing with the, the then and now. We're still getting air raids where the ship's being bombed all around us. People, people are dying. We're taking on uh, Argentine prisoners of war. The, the band have now got weapons and we're guiding these prisoners of war and dealing with them. We're taking casualties on board. Um, so it's very much you've got to get on with it and deal with it now. And we'll think about the consequences later. Having witnessed what you witnessed and now having Argentinian prisoners of war on board, what was what was the feeling, the the atmosphere between Royal Marines on board the vessel when they had these prisoners brought on board? Well, most of now, most of the Royal Marines are now ashore setting up the beachhead and we are the band are the main military unit on board that's mm. why we're now armed we're, we're the we're the guides for the prisoners of war and we all took it very seriously and um i actually got a bollocking one day because from the, the company sergeant major because um um the well, long story short was the, the the security of the ship if any of the argentines had got our weapons then they could have taken other weapons and taken over the ship and in fact, post hostilities, there was a small mutiny uh, a, a, when we were taking the Argentines back to the mainland. Uh, so we took it very seriously. And obviously now shit hit the fan. We'd seen death and destruction all around us. And the band put on a good game face. The, the three or four of us who were the first guards um, put on a good game face. Uh, we, weren't, we weren't musicians with guns. We were Royal Marines uh, guarding prisoners. And they weren't all conscripts, as sometimes you read about in the papers that they they were they were all young conscripts. Well, some were, but some of our prisoners were also special forces from the the battle at Top Marlow House. So we had to establish rules and let them know that we knew what we were doing with the weapons and what they could and couldn't do. Couldn't get out of bed without permission. Couldn't walk across the room. Couldn't approach us without getting our attention first. Just establish those rules because we didn't want to have to shoot anybody. Um, on, on one of the submarines in Gritvik and in South Georgia, um, due to miscommunica miscommunication, uh, uh, an Argentine had been shot and killed just because he was pushing buttons on the submarine that he, he should or shouldn't have been doing. But so we didn't want any of that to be going on with. So we made it quite clear and we were quite stern with them to start with until we established some sort of routine and protocol, if you like. Uh, I understand you you were left uh, or given a, a note by uh, some of the Argentinian prisoners. Well, yeah. So some of these guys are with us right from the 21st of May, right through, especially the wounded guys, uh, right through until the end of hostilities. And then what happened, um, there were a few other things that had to go on. But um, uh, what happened was the uh, at the end of the war, there were about 10,000 or so Argentine prisoners in the encroaching southern hemisphere winter. So um, the obvious place to put them was on ships like the Canberra at my ship and the Norland, which was a North Sea ferry that was always down there, that was also in the Falklands, because we had all this accommodation space uh, because we were cruise ships. So we took about 10,000, well, we took on Canberra, we took about 5,000 of them on board. And we also brought on board uh, some Welsh guards. Uh, to act as corridor guards. So they, they set up at the end of each of these long corridors of cabins. Uh, but we had our own people who we'd had from, from, from day one, practically, who we knew quite well. And now, you know, we'd established a sort of rapport. Uh, and we set off to take them back to Argentina. 
which was quite a surreal experience because uh, they'd only surrendered in the islands. They'd not surrendered on the mainland or in the sea in between. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, the day before we arrived in Argentina, um, some of the people I was guarding asked for pen and paper. And the only thing I had was a posh restaurant menu card from the Canberra. And I gave it to them. I didn't know what they wanted it for. And they signed it. About 20 of them signed it with various messages saying, thank you, amigo. Thanks for looking after us to a great Royal Marine. All the sort of things you'd like to see on a staff appraisal that my bosses seem to have missed. I do have a, I do have a copy of it here. I'll hold it up. I don't know if the, uh, the camera will pick it up. But it's basically signed by about 20, um, 20 of the Argentines. So I claim it to be the the most unusual war souvenir, a signed thank you card from the enemy. And it's one of the reasons that um, the book has got publicity. Uh, another reason it's got publicity is that in, in terms of uh, reconciliation between enemy forces, uh, I, I mean, enough time has passed now, but an Argentine historian has found about 15 of the signatories. And over the years, the last year, they've been back in touch via email. And maybe next year, there's talk of uh, a reunion in Argentina. So a bit of a quite a positive outcome. And I think uh, one that perhaps other theatres of war could, could, could consider. When enough time has passed, the ordinary soldier who's sent to war by old men, old politicians, can actually uh, doff their cap and go and shake hands and share a glass of beer or, or, or a, a glass of Malbec and a steak together. So that's what I'm hoping for next year, a bit of reconciliation. And um, perhaps it's easier for me because I wasn't assured during the dirty fighting like the Marines, the paras and the soldiers. But um, I think there's a I think there's a lesson in there somewhere for everyone. No, I, I, absolutely. Um, when when soldiers are going on to, to the battlefield, at the end of the day, they're they're doing a job. They've they've got orders to follow. Both sides are, are following orders. Uh, I mean, we, we could take it back to the, the famous football game in the middle of no man's land in, in the First World War uh, of how both sides came together um, in, in the spirit of Christmas. So, I, you know, that that's a very poignant message that we should all sort of carry forward. The soldiers at the end of the day are just, just doing jobs that they're ordered to do. Yeah, it was quite... Um... I didn't know what to do with the card initially. I think as a young man full of testosterone and, and puffed up from war and roughy tufty, I've never been to a war, I've never got a medal. I, I, I didn't know what to do with it initially. So I just put it away with my photographs. But over the years, it became more and more important. Mm. And then many years later, um, well, about three years ago, actually, uh, I was at a reunion for Commando Forces Band in Plymouth. And uh, about seven of our guys have now passed away through, through age and lifestyle and uh, and all those things that come. And I said to the lads over here, I said, um, well, someone needs to write our bit of, bit, bit of the war down. And they said, you should do it, because I wrote Pantes for the Royal Marines, bizarrely, why they thought that qualified me. They said, you should do it. So um, I got my diary out, I got my card out, I got my, my pictures out, and I sat down and wrote the, the book, The Band That Went to War. And, and on the back of this side story about having a card, it's got a bit of publicity. I've been on the breakfast sofa mm -hmm. and uh, managed to get on, 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 on quality podcasts like this one. And um, so it, it, it's, it's given me a, a, a place to speak about it, that perhaps the ordinary soldier and marine who hasn't written a book doesn't. 
which, which, which is a shame because everyone's got a story. Some of them are, are gruesome, some of them are horrible. So, some of them just need recording because they're, 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 they're so interesting. But my mind, I've got a bit of extra leverage because of this, this, this card, shall we say. I think not only the card, but the, the fact that the, the band itself played um, an active role in, in the Falklands War itself. When, when coming back from that conflict, did did you and the rest of the band members feel feel changed as people um, having experienced and gone through that together? Yeah, definitely. I don't think any of us would have admitted it at that age, or maybe some of the older guys. On the way back, we were offered some sort of uh, counselling by a Lieutenant Commander, Royal Navy psychiatrist. And being young men then, with sat with him and the Padre, this is well before decompression was a, a thing or PTSD was really recognised. We played lip service. I remember now sitting there talking and, and almost pretending to open up, if you like, uh, and um, as and uh, just just bullshitting really. The, the you know pretending I'm I'm opening up, and that some of the others did as well. And that was it. That was our turn. We had twenty minutes. But why, I think it sort of inoculated me a bit because in 1989, when the, the bombing happened at Deal and I lost 11 of my mates uh, and very, very nearly got me as well, um, the same lieutenant commander came to Deal to do um, the decompression and to talk to people involved in the bombing. And that time round, I didn't pay lip service. I really went with it. I opened up completely. And I think that helped me. And having met him a few years before in the Falklands, I think that helped me. There was no, um, I was already inoculated against, or I knew who he was. I knew his methods. I knew, and so I could get straight into it. And I think it's really helped me because I don't seem to have, touch wood, any um, long-term effects. People say I am a bit <laughs> a bit crazy. My sense of humour is warped. Um, um, uh, yeah, that, that's what they would say about me on, on a good day. Uh, and I, I think that really did help the second time round. Maybe not the first time, but the second time for the bombing, uh, talking about it, speaking about it, opening up really did help me um, let go of some of those demons, I think. When, when coming back from the Falcons, obviously um, having this chat with the Padre uh, and your commanding officer, being, being young, coming back from a conflict zone, we... Do you think there was almost a fear of opening up in front of your peers because of a sort of an alpha male uh, environment of the armed forces at that time? Yeah, coming back on the ship the first time round, yeah, certainly that was the case. We all just nodded and sat around drinking the coffee and biscuits and saying, yes, so yeah, 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 I feel bad about this. But, so I think there was, especially as young men, you're full of testosterone, you've been to a war, that changes you. Um mm. Um, it definitely changed changed us all, and it was very hard once we got back uh, to turn back into musicians with a Royal Marine cat badge uh, than Royal Marines carrying an instrument. So when we got back, that was strange. We had a great welcoming back into Southampton with uh, on the Canberra with thousands of well, forty or fifty thousand people, and uh, we were part of this victory force. And of course, we'd done our bit. But we hadn't been ashore like the Marines in Paris and, and, and some of the army guys. So we'd, uh, but we were, we, we were tagged on the back of that as um, welcomed home heroes, if you like. And of course, we, we basked in that. We took a bit of that. 
And then we drove back to Plymouth, handed our kit in, and the boss said, uh, well, that's it, you want to leave for six weeks. And that was a very strange feeling, drive, um, going out the gate, across the Torpoint Ferry into Cornwall, and suddenly I've got six weeks ahead of me, and where is where's 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 my green that i'm wearing where's my berry where's my boots where's my danger where's the danger where's the all those things that i've been living with over the last three months um that was a very strange like your legs have been chopped off so i was we were always ringing each other and arranging to meet up the lads to drink and uh just and that was from our relatively clean part of the war what soldiers and marines and paras must have been going through when they were just set off on leave must have been entirely different uh, and worse still if you were if you moved somewhere like uh, you were living in scotland or yorkshire so we were quite quite closely knit in plymouth and still met up but yeah very strange feeling post-war to try and get back to some sort of normality it's still very much uh similar to people who've, who've returned back from iraq and afghanistan where they come back and they've almost got this sense of uh, hyper-vigilism when they're out in, in, in public, sort of almost by themselves, feeling vulnerable, um, not wanting to be in crowds, looking at exits and, you know, having their backs to the wall. So that that's the modern-day aspect of it. But obviously, by the sounds of it, you were feeling very much the same uh, when, when you came back. Yeah, it's a strange. It's a very strange feeling. Even now, I, I'm even bearing in mind that you know I, I wasn't a roughy tufty commando. But even now, we go to a restaurant. I have to sit in a certain seat. Um, my wife says, "Where do you want to sit?" I said, "I have to sit there. I have to know what's happening there." And it also follows on from my second career in the police. And I, I did have to go to Northern Ireland a couple of times. And uh, but it's just, I would say, common sense. It's common military sense, shall we say, that you, you've learned you. They may never need, but it's a it's an in, inbuilt, innate desire to, to know where the door is and who's coming through it and what's happening in case you have to react. Maybe that's at the seat of it in case you have to react. Maybe that's what where where it lies. Um, if if you feel comfortable talking about it, <laughs> would you um, talk us through that day of, of that that bombing? So Deal, as I said, is um, way out on the limb. It's about five miles from Dover. You have to want to get here. Um, at that point in 1989, it was the Royal Marines School of Music. It was the uh, the staff band of Deal. Um, so it was uh, very much a soft target. They changed from having Royal Marines on the gate to c civilian staff. And, you know, you, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. They were nice enough chaps, bless them. But then, you know, they weren't the most... Uh, they weren't, they weren't that keen on the job, shall we say. Uh, and um, on the 20, 22nd of September, um, I was late for work. I just got out of the shower, cycling down the road, and there was a huge uh, boom. And um, I was about, it's about a mile and a half from where, um, from where I live. And as I got closer, I saw a guy who I, who's, um, who's the civilian violin professor, an ex-Royal Marine bandsman who'd become a professor of music. And he was walking up the road covered in dust just around the corner. I said, George, what's up? He said, oh, it's, there's a gas explosion. The church is gone. Now, the church is, was, was an old church, but it was the concert hall where the staff band used to rehearse. And um, as I went round the corner into what's called Canada Road, there's a huge pile of dust, uh, a strange smell in the air. And I can't pretend I knew it was explosive, but it certainly wasn't gas. You know, there was a very strange smell in the air. And I knew it wasn't a gas explosion. 
police, fire and ambulances are starting to arrive. And I go through the gates and there is what was the church is now a pile of rubble. And I mean, it was a huge, great church. And um, uh, the, the junior band where I would have been in, in 1973 were practicing on the on the drill, on the drill square. Uh, the drum major then saw what happened and got them digging through the rubble. And me and I met up with some of the people I knew and we started digging through the rubble. And we found some body parts. We found shoes with feet in it. And uh, we started finding um, uh, body parts. Uh, and then the fire brigade uh, uh, and the senior police officer um, said, well, this, as in Northern Ireland, this could be a come on. There could be a secondary device. So first of all, they cleared the site temporarily. Uh, and then everyone was allowed back in. And then it was cleared again. And then there was lots of whistles blowing as every now and again, they would call for silence in case there were people buried under the rubble. So the people who had been injured were now cleared and we really, well, not we, but there were now just bodies being brought out, people we knew and placed in the temporary morgue. And um, it was an incredibly, I'm just stupid to say, incredibly bad day. And not only did it kill 11 musicians, a couple more have died since as, a, as an indirect result. But the deal is a small town. It ripped the heart out of the town. Um, it killed one of the city cleaners. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very cowardly attack against a very soft target. And uh, we were, we did wear the Royal Marine cap badge. We were Royal Marines. So perhaps you can justify it in that sense. But politically, it did nothing for their cause and, uh, and just took the lives of 11 great musicians. Looking back then, you know, being late that morning, do you think that saved your life? Well, normally I wouldn't have been in that room, but that day I should have been in in that room in in the, in the coffee boat. Um, I should have gone in there first for for reasons there's no point going into, but I should have been in there first. So yeah, I did have a bit of a guilt, survivor's guilt from yeah. that, um, unfortunately, and uh, it, that that came out in my in my decompression, if you like. That was something I felt bad for. Um, so uh, yeah, it's uh, oh, it's just one of those big markers in my life, big hole in my life, and uh, you know, a day I never forget. And uh, I just I was, I was lucky. Some people weren't, and some people um, even though each year in deal we put on a, a charity pantomime. Uh, we still do it now, and uh, uh, and the um, uh, some of the guys in that are still affected by the bombing, and. Uh, uh, one of them wanted to move away uh, last year after a funeral. And, I, and I, I won't mention names, but I said to him, you need to stay in deal because we are your support group. You don't know it, but we are it. We are. And he, his, him and his wife went, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm not moving, not moving away. Uh, and I'm, th I'm glad he's still involved with the Panto. He's still in our fold. We still can uh, keep an eye on him a bit, I think. When, when it comes to the point where you were leaving the armed forces then, was that uh, your decision? Was it the the time where your, your sort of contract was coming up? What influenced you if it was your decision to leave? Uh, and how were you feeling at that time? So post-bombing, I'm, I'm now a sergeant in Deal. I'm the, I'm the percussion instructor at the School of Music. And uh, the, the band service is a small part of the Royal Marines. The Royal Marines are a small part of the Royal Navy. They, are, they pay our wages. And the second Sea Lords presentation team came down to deal 
and gave a marvelous presentation about actually anyone, whatever rank you're in now, you're probably going to stay in it. There's no money for this subsistence. There's no pay increases. It was jam, not tomorrow. It was jam the day after tomorrow. Uh, and they created this very, managed to create a cozy atmosphere uh, for um, what was actually all bad news. And so the warrant officer at the end said, any questions? And so I put my hand up. I had two young daughters at the time, and I'd been in the Marines for 17 years now, and now I was going to be stuck at the rank of sergeant. Um, maybe that was my natural rank anyway, because of my ability, but um, I'd still like to think I could have got a colour sergeant or, you know, so... I said, yeah, I've heard what you said, sir. And I said, I'm going to leave here now and, and apply to leave the Royal Marines and join the police. So he, he invited me outside for a bollocking, uh, him to me rather. And luckily my bandmaster jumped in and said, well, you did ask for any comments and questions and Sergeant Short has told you the honest answer. So that was my reason for leaving. The, um, my time, had, there was no further promotion for me. Uh, it wasn't even a glass ceiling, it was a stone ceiling. And so I decided at that age, of age 32, 33, now's the time to move rather than stay a sergeant until I was 40 and then have to try and retrain or get another job. So I was still young enough to join the police. So that's what I did. I left and, uh, and joined Kent Police. How, how did you feel about leaving that military family at that time um, and, and joining, well, a new family, because the police force, again, it, it, it is a separate family in its own entity. How did you feel about leaving that and joining the police force? Well, I was quite excited. And luckily, uh, especially down in Kent, there were a lot of ex-servicemen and Royal Marines in the police. They'd already made the move. So it wasn't moving to a completely alien family. And in fact, my first section at Dover was made up probably half of servicemen. So the humour that we had, the dark humour, the, the way of dealing with people, the way you could trust each other and when it comes to a fight or something, or, uh, you know, we, you, you had people around you again, you could trust uh, to get the job done robustly without having to look over your shoulder like they do now for, for, the, for the wokeness or the PC-ness or whether you've called somebody he, she, when you shouldn't have. Um, it was, this was in the uh, 91, the 90s when you could still police and 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 deal with it with some of the scum and some of the filth that you have to deal with so that nice people can go about their business so um yeah it, it wasn't such a big shock um what was a shock was having to learn the law um because i'm not very academic um, um i'm not bad with 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 words but um um, in terms of learning, suddenly I have to put my learning hat back on and uh, along with another uniform and learn how to, 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 to deal with the public in a polite way. Um, I must say, I did, uh, I think I dealt with them. I was like a drummer in a police uniform uh, with the same sense of humour. And for the most part, that carried me well. It, it dealt with a lot of situations um, that uh, in a non-police way, shall we say, uh, uh, mostly dealt with it <clears throat> as, as a drummer, and that carried me well. Uh, until uh, what, there was one occasion when I was up a back alley with two blokes who were threatening to, to, to stab me and punch me, and I dealt with it in a Royal Marine way. They think they thought I was going to um, just roll over, and I just got I just um, uh, I dealt with it in, in, in a very thorough way, shall we say, which which led to some complaints. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I wasn't having any of that shit. Thank you very much. Uh, so um, 
like we said at the beginning of the interview, you've uh, written your book, The Band That Went to War, uh, and you, you've alluded that you've written a, a second book. So where where can we find these uh, books? Amazon, uh, Waterstones? Yeah, you can find them on Amazon, and that's the website, not the jungle. They'll actually deliver. Thank you. There's a little line I threw in there. The Band That Went to War, it's an award-winning book. I say that quite proudly because it's been recognised, because it has... Um, it tells the story of how the band went went to war, hence the title. We we weren't ashore doing the fighting, but we did oil the wheels. There are some Marines who saw us on the way down uh, training. They saw us playing music. They saw us unloading them from helicopters on a stretcher. They saw us dealing with the Argentines, and they saw us entertaining them on the way back. And for some young Marines, that was quite an eye-opener. What, what, what does Bandy do? Well, actually... So the, for the Marines of that time, they knew they then knew what we did. And uh, so um, I'm quite pleased the book's been recognised. It's done quite well. It raises a bit of money for um, uh, the Royal Marine Charity. It's raised about uh, 500 quid for them. Um, so on the back of that, I had about a year off. Uh, and then I'd started to do some research because actually, for me, that was my war. And we've all got our war, shall we say. Uh, but doing some research, I realised that actually right through history, the Royal Marine bands the musicians, have always been involved. Uh, when I joined in the 70s, it was on the back of um, quite a, a peace dividend of the, of the 60s and 70s. But actually, I, once I started to do my research, we lost a lot of people in the Second World War, and the First World War. They've been to Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan. So my next book, which I've just finished this week, and it's going after the publishers, is called Musicians at War, Royal Marine Musicians uh, Military Deployments. And that'll be available in about six months. Um, tells the story about some of these guys who have done far more than I ever did. Uh, and have uh, been on combat patrols in Afghanistan, uh, of Kosovo, digging up bodies with the United Nations. Uh, it's just an incredible story. Even, even some musicians were at the Abafan disaster in 1966, helping to dig uh, dead bodies out of a, a mining disaster. So I've managed to collate, interview, question, uh, and put together this book, which I hope gives a, a, a much bigger picture of, uh, of musicians who are sent to war. Is there a release date planned as yet? No, I've literally just finished it a couple of days ago. I'm editing it now. I've sent it off to General Julian Thompson, Royal Marines, who is uh, is having a look over it and hopefully will write me the forward to the book as he did for my other book. Uh, and then it will go off to the publishers. So it, that one's at least six months away. But the band that went to war is out now and it would make a damn good Christmas present for anyone. And um, if anyone wants to look me up on social media, I can send you a signed copy or Amazon will do it rather quickly. Or you can get it off Pen and Sword, who's the, the publisher. But it's worth looking around to see. Um, where, where Amazon sometimes have it on sale. So I'll, uh, I'll put some links in for uh, Pen and Sword and Amazon and uh, your Twitter account in the D description of the video and on spotify as well so if people want to have a an easy time just follow the link at the bottom and i'll point you in the direction for where you can find that book that'd be great dan thanks brian it's been absolutely fascinating listening to your experience during the the falklands your time in ireland uh, and, and what it was like for you with that tragic bombing when you come back um I hope it's it's been an eye-opener for people who's watching and listening to this. So thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Uh, well, thanks for the invitation, Dan. It's always good to talk. And uh, it's quite cathartic, again, to, 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 to bring these memories forward and uh, and remind myself where I've been, what I've done, and how I've managed to get through it.
Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. Thank <laughs> you.